Please take your Bibles and uh, turn them with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And uh, as you are turning there, let me say something that will perhaps shock some of you who know me well. I think that the most uh, significant piece of fiction writing I've ever read is not The Lord of the Rings. That may surprise some of you who have gone into my office and you've seen that big Middle Earth map hanging up on the wall. I like to mess with people when they see that map and they're not sure what it is. I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's a map of some unreached people groups that Harbins is, is trying to reach there, trying to reach the orcs and the elves and all of that. Um, I love The Lord of the Rings, but in regards to the most important piece of fiction I've ever read, I'd say it would be John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's a brilliant and vivid allegory where Bunyan skillfully teaches us through the story biblical truth. And the story begins with the main character, Christian, a citizen of the city of destruction. And through the reading of a book which represents the Bible, he becomes aware of this heavy burden on his back, which is a picture of his sin. And he becomes aware of the fact that his city and all that is in it is doomed to be destroyed by fire from heaven, which represents the judgment of God against our sins. And Christian is in despair. And Christian is desperate to know what must he do to be saved. And he is met by a man named Evangelist. And Evangelist directs Christian to a path that he must follow that will take him away from destruction and towards salvation. And all he's got to do is stay on the path and go directly towards a shining light which marks out a gate in the distance, and he needs to stay on that path. Now, even if you haven't read the book, you can guess what happens, right? Wouldn't be much of a story if he just stayed on the proper path. He he travels, and he and Christian meet somebody named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And they begin to discuss this awful burden on Christian's back. And Christian tells him, I'm going to the gate. And there I'll receive help to get rid of this burden. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man offers Christian a bit of advice. He says, don't listen to evangelists. Are you kidding me? He has sent you the worst and most difficult and most dangerous way possible. Don't go that way. Instead, there's a village. Just a little off the path, just about a mile down from here, and the village is named Morality. And you'll find a man there named Legality, and he knows how to help people like you get these burdens off their backs. He's very skilled at that. Just go over to that hill, and the first house is his. Christian started out his journey going the right way. But Mr. Worldly Wise Man comes along and misdirects him, and he sends him in a direction that's going to prove to be bad, to be deadly. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is writing to churches that started out well. Through Paul's evangelistic preaching, they became aware of the burden of their sin and of the destruction they deserved at the hands of a holy God. They became aware also of the grace of God, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the Galatians gladly embraced that message. But in time, some other people infiltrated these churches and began to misdirect the Galatians. They were called the Judaizers. They said, Paul is right in saying that you need Jesus to be saved. 
But Paul is wrong in saying that it is Christ alone that saves. Yes, Christ has done his part, but you need to do your part. In fact, you need to become Jewish, like us. You need to receive the Jewish mark of circumcision to be counted as one of God's people. You need to obey other Jewish religious laws like the food laws. And you need to observe the special Jewish holy days. Yes, you are saved by Christ. Christ plus all of these other things. Yes, Jesus saves. But you've got to take the baton from Christ, so to speak. And you need to keep going because he's not going to do it all for you. You need to complete what Christ has begun. And Paul is writing the book of Galatians to set the record straight. He sees that these Galatians are in danger. They're beginning to be swayed by the notion that what they can, that what they can do can increase the favor that God shows them and can even contribute to their salvation. Now, nobody in this room is battling the temptation to be circumcised. And most of you probably are not struggling with whether or not you should eat kosher foods, though that's not completely unheard of in Christian circles. But I would guess that there are some of you here this morning who are tempted to believe that the things that you do earns God's acceptance of you and earns His favor and His love. Now, now you might have the right doctrinal statement, and you might say, no, 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 I, I believe that, that we are saved from beginning to end by, by faith and not by works. You, you, have, you affirm that, you embrace that, but sometimes you don't live like that. And I would guess that all of us in this room need to be reminded of the great love and freedom that belongs to God's people. So, please stand with me now in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 1. And we're going to read on down through verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. Uh, circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come to the text this morning trembling. Father, help me to rightly divide the word of truth and to preach this morning not in the power of the flesh, which which is futile, but through the power of the Spirit. Help, Help the people in this congregation, in this room this morning hear and meditate on the Word of God, not not on the basis of the power of flesh and mere human reasoning, but through the, the power of the Holy Spirit which illuminates the Word of God. Help us all this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, 
Pastor Steve preached a very powerful sermon closing out Galatians chapter 4. And in that chapter, the Apostle Paul reaches back to the book of Genesis to the story of Abraham, where God tells Abraham that he and his wife Sarah would have a child uh, through whom the promise of the gospel would be carried forward. But Abraham was old, and Sarah was infertile her whole life, and on top of that, she was old. It seemed like an impossible promise. And for that reason, this old couple agreed that Abraham should take a second wife, a slave woman named Hagar. And any child she would have would then be considered the child of promise. And they had a child, Abraham and Hagar did, and the child was named Ishmael. But this child that was born through natural human efforts and natural human strength was rejected by God. And so now Abraham and Sarah, they had no choice but to trust God. And in time, God supernaturally does the impossible. He gives Sarah the ability to conceive a child, and this child is named Isaac. And Isaac is regarded by God to be the child of promise and the heir to the promises of God. And so you you have a stark contrast between rejected Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, who came about through human effort, and Isaac, the promised son, who came about through the supernatural power of God, working through the faith of Abraham and Sarah. And Paul's point is, is that that is how the gospel works. You do not receive salvation from God and acceptance by God through your own human efforts. That's the way of the slave. Instead, it is to those who stop working and start trusting God who are saved by God. That's freedom. And so with this concept of the slave woman and the free woman still ringing in the Galatians' ears, Paul moves on into chapter 5 to underscore the the path, the, the, the choices that are before you. There's really only two choices. There's only two ways to live. And the first thing that Paul does in our text is that he says that it's either freedom or slavery. Freedom or slavery. Look at verse 1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's two ways to live, the the way of freedom or the way of slavery. Slavery is trying to earn God's favor through obedience to Him, through rule-keeping. Imagine the life of a slave trying to earn his master's favor through a constant laboring and working and striving, trying, trying, to, trying to earn that favor and always uncertain about whether or not he's done enough. And in this case, in the spiritual realm, the rule book, the code by which the slave is judged to be acceptable or not, is God's law. And Paul says... You will never make yourself acceptable to God by trying to keep the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified, Galatians 2.16. And the reason why no one will be justified or accepted by God on the basis of law-keeping is because all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, Galatians 3.10. And the reason why all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse is because the scripture says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, cursed be everyone who isn't perfect. 
and who's perfect. And so to try to earn God's favor that way is a dead end. It's futile slavery. It's the life, really, of everyone apart from Christ. It's a slavery to condemnation, to the fear of death, a slavery to Satan and his ways. In Romans 8, 7, Paul says that the mind of the person outside of Christ is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the person apart from Christ can't actually serve God because he already has another master, and you cannot serve two masters. And this slavery carries with it a verdict of guilty in God's courtroom with a sentence of death in hell forever. In John chapter 8, there's an interesting conversation that Jesus has with some Jews who had a superficial belief in Christ. It wasn't a saving belief. In some ways, they were similar to the Judaizers in that they rested their hope in their Jewishness and in their ability to keep the law. And Jesus said to them, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they said back to Jesus, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. These Jews thought that they had freedom because of their physical descent from Abraham. But they were in bondage to sin. In fact, a little later on, if you keep reading John 8, Jesus says they don't belong to God at all. But they belong to the devil. They thought they were sons in God's house, but really they were slaves to Satan. Their religious deeds and their human effort meant nothing in the end. And this is why Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, the people who are not slaves, the people who are really a part of God's household, are not people who are trying in vain to be good enough to earn their way into the household. That's slavery. It never works. Instead, God's people are those who are trusting in God's gospel promises regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their social status. All such people are redeemed from their slavery and are adopted into God's house and are now not counted as slaves but as sons, not only sons but heirs. And this is why Paul is so furious with the Judaizers, these worldly wise men coming in and trying to misdirect the Galatian churches, undermining the truth of the gospel. Hence Paul's forceful declaration in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Freedom from guilt, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the religious treadmill where I've got to try harder and harder and harder to earn God's favor and it's all in vain. Freedom from the fear of death and hell. Freedom from wondering whether or not God is really my father. Christ has set the believer free from all of those things. And so Paul then says, next, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's interesting that Paul says again. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. What does that mean? These Galatians, the Galatian Gentiles, they weren't saved out of Jewish law-keeping. They were saved out of paganism. And yet here, Paul warns them that to go the way of the Judaizers is to return to the slavery that Christ had set them free from. 
This is not the first time that Paul has done this. If you turn backwards to chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says to them, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul here is referring to the old pagan lifestyle of the Galatian Gentiles. They were slaves to their false gods, enslaved to those that weren't really gods by nature. So what were they? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.20 that with pagan sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. The pagans were unwittingly in spiritual fellowship, not with gods, but with the demonic powers. So Paul says to the Galatians, you were enslaved to that. But now that you have come to know God, this is, still, this is back in chapter 4, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Notice again, Paul uses the word again. Paul is essentially saying that to embrace the teachings of the Judaizers... Though you think it's something new, it's actually something old. It's something you've been doing all along. Both pagan superstition and Jewish legalism is the same kind of slavery. And pagan religion, what were they doing? They were offering sacrifices. They were keeping rules. They were practicing rituals. They were doing everything they could to try to be in right standing with the gods. And there was always that fear in the background that they were never doing enough, so they better do more. Paul wants the Galatians to see that to embrace Jewish legalism is to do exactly the same thing. It is a vain and endless attempt through rules and rituals and religious practice to earn favor with God and be in good standing with Him. And at its core... Pagan religion and Jewish legalism is the same kind of slavery. It's satanic. It's turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, weak and worthless because they cannot save. And so we learn that even the Christian, even the Christian is in danger of being lured and to enticed into a type of slavery. Paul here in writing Galatians is not speaking to unsaved people. Over and over again, Paul refers to the Galatians as brothers. Chapter 3, he reminds them of their conversion and their reception of the Holy Spirit. A little later on in Galatians 5 verse 10, he expresses a confidence that they're going to repent and reject this false teaching. He's writing to believers, confused believers, but believers nonetheless. They have not yet fully gone the way of the Judaizers, but they're listening to that message. They're listening to that argument, and they're beginning to think about it and consider it and be influenced by it. And so even believers, even believers in this room are vulnerable to this. Now, every member of this church would affirm that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and not by works. You can't be a member of this church without affirming that. But there are some of you that are more tempted to legalism than others. Some of you have a specific weakness in this very area. Some of you, 
some of you have to fight the idea that God will love you more, will accept you more, will show you more favor if you just work a little harder for Him and, and be a little better for Him. Friends, that's slavery. That's satanic. That's turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Friends, Jesus Christ died to set you free from that way of life, from that way of thinking. If, if God's favor and love towards you rises and falls based on your performance, you will be completely miserable and afraid and insecure because you have built your hope on something shaky. Namely you, you're shaky, and you know it, shaky and flaky. The answer instead is not to build your hope on your fickleness, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. To sing with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and, you say it, righteousness. My hope is built on His righteousness. And if you're a Christian hidden in Christ, then God's relationship to you is based on the perfect righteousness of Christ. Praise God for that. A righteousness that God is totally pleased with and lasts forever. You know, you know what God said about Jesus? This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. God hasn't stopped feeling that way about Jesus. And that's how God feels about all who are hidden in Christ. And in light of that, Harbin's church, be free. Another way Paul helps us to consider the two paths is that he presents before us the paths of Christ or law. Somebody might say, well, it's good to have your hope built on Jesus' blood and righteousness. But isn't it even better if we build our hope on more than that? On Christ's work plus our own? And Paul's answer to this is in verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What Paul means is that if you accept circumcision, and by implication, any other kind of work and human achievement as a means to be made acceptable, acceptable to God, then Christ will not benefit you. Now, you would think that Christ plus something would be good. In regular math, you have one, and you add one to it, and you end up with something greater than what you had before. But that's not how gospel math works. Gospel math is a little different. With gospel math... Christ plus something equals nothing. In fact, to try to add to Christ, you end up losing Christ, and He is of no benefit to you. Here's an illustration that's been helpful to me. Consider a man who has an old baseball, and is autographed by Babe Ruth. Now, he's heard that such a ball might be extremely valuable and precious to some people out there, to some collectors. And he decides to sell it. But he was concerned because the signature 
on the ball was faded. And, and so to try to make it clearer, he took the baseball and he got out a Sharpie. You know where this is going. And he carefully traced over the original letters and he spelled out Babe Ruth there. Now how much is that baseball worth? The, the man obliterated the real autograph. He had turned something priceless for him into something worthless for him, something that would have no benefit, no profit, no value to him at all. Do you get the point? Through his work, Jesus Christ has paid for and secured salvation. When Christ was hanging on the cross, he did not cry out, It is almost finished. He shouted out, It is finished. His finished work cannot be refinished. And if you try to add your works to his works, then Jesus' work is no benefit to you. And the temptation for some of you this morning is to regard Christ's work as essential, but not as sufficient. Did you hear me? It's essential, but not sufficient. And to fall into that temptation will bring you back into slavery. You see, often we think of Satan trying to enslave us with obviously bad things, like drugs, or pornography, or materialism. But what we don't realize is that Satan will also try to use good things to enslave you. Did you know that? You've got to somehow finish what Christ started, and he whispers temptations into your mind that says for you to really be accepted by God and have assurance is for you to read your Bible more. You read your Bible for 10 days straight, but guess what? You skipped day 11. Really? You can't even do that? Aren't you a Christian? If you just perform better, if you just shared your faith more, if you just be a better spouse or a better parent, if you would just, and you can fill in the blank, if you would just, then God will love you and keep you as a son or daughter. And when you fail, guess what happens? You become fearful and you think, maybe I've messed up one time too many. Maybe God is beginning to turn away from me. And, and then the, a sense of condemnation comes in, even though that's what we're supposed to be liberated from. And so what do you do? You, you try harder and harder to make up for your sins with the hopes that God will show you more grace and favor in return. Friends, that's slavery. That's satanic. That's going back to the weak and elementary principles of the world. It'll steal your joy. It'll increase your self-centeredness as you turn your eyes off of Christ and onto you and your performance. You know what it'll do? It'll increase pride when you think you're doing well, and it'll increase despair when you fail. And guess what? Satan is happy with either one. He loves it when you're prideful, and he loves it when you're in despair. Either way, it's self-centered. It's me-centered. It's two sides of the same coin. And it's causing me to take my eyes off of Christ. Friends, that is bondage. 
Satan, the accuser, the finger pointer, he will tell you you can do it, and then we, he will point the finger when you fail. You see, whenever you think you have the ability to offer anything to God, to be accepted by God, then you're going to be enslaved by that thing. The gospel is meant to set us free from that. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And so if you're banking your hope on Jesus alone, then the other equation in gospel math looks like this. Christ plus nothing equals all of the benefits and all of the blessings that come with being part of God's family. Salvation, eternal life, sonship, knowing God, forgiveness, and all the other riches that God has for His people in this age and in the age to come. You see, to go back to slavery is to forget who you are and it's to live like an unbeliever. An unbeliever who feels he has to build up his own spiritual resume before God because what Jesus did was not enough. But the one who commits to that way of life ultimately receives no advantage. Christ is of no benefit to that person because as Paul says in verse 3, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. You see, if you're going to do away with God's grace, then all you have left is God's law. And the only way to be justified by God's law is to keep it. And not just to keep it, but to keep it perfectly. James writes in James chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James has given you a hypothetical situation there of a man who's done everything right his whole life, but when he's 70 years old, he tells a lie. And so what happens? Does he get a pass? Does he get a 99%? No, Bible says he becomes guilty of breaking all the law. Now that's hypothetical. No one is sinless until they are 70. Instead, because we are sinners, we start sinning as soon as we are able. And those of you with little children know exactly what I'm talking about. And so to embrace a system of justification before God by your good works is futile. As Paul pointed out back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You see, to rely on the law never brings salvation. It actually just makes you a debtor to the law. So your choices are either self-salvation through your own good deeds, which results in curse and slavery, or salvation through Christ's good work on your behalf that you receive by faith. You can't mix the two. That's why Paul says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. So friends, there are two ways to live, the way of freedom or the way of slavery, the way of Christ or the way of the law, or, you can put it this way, the way of hope or despair. Look at the way of freedom described in verse 5. Paul says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The Judaizers said it was through the flesh, by works, that we achieve righteousness. Paul says, no, it is through the work of the Spirit, the work of God. It is by faith we wait for the hope of righteousness. Every aspect of the righteousness that the believer enjoys is by faith through the Spirit. 
the initial righteousness of Christ we receive upon conversion, the growth in practical righteousness we receive day by day as we walk with Christ, and that final climactic experience of perfected practical righteousness in heaven later on. It all comes by faith. And I think it's that final aspect of righteousness when we're made perfect. That's what Paul is thinking about here in verse 5. We wait for that final climactic outcome of Christ's redemptive work, the hope of righteousness. And notice that little four-letter word, hope. It's the hope of righteousness we wait for. Now, the force of that word translated into English as hope is, is weakened. Because in the English, the word for hope conveys uncertainty, a lack of assurance. Well, I hope it's sunny tomorrow. Well, I hope that the Falcons make it to the Super Bowl next year and this time they win. Boy, if anything conveys uncertainty, is that, isn't it? But that's how we use the word hope. But this Greek word for hope actually conveys the exact opposite. It conveys the sense of a confident certainty a bold assurance. You see, the way of freedom in Christ is a way of certainty and confidence. You know why? Because the believer is to be placing his confidence in the one thing that will never fail, God Himself, who always keeps His promises. He's always faithful to His people even when His people fail. God's people God's children should have a confident hope because of the character and the strength of the one in whom they place their hope in. Not so with the slave, because the spiritual slave is banking his hope in his own efforts, and that way leads to despair and futility. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian foolishly takes the advice of worldly wise man. He veers off the path, and he goes towards the hill to find the village of morality and the house of the man named Legality. And when he gets to the hill, guess what? He discovers it's not a hill. It's a mountain. And it is huge. And it is hanging over his head. And Christian, in that moment, is terrified that that big, huge, weighty mountain is going to fall on him and crush him. And there's flashes of lightning that threaten to strike him. And what's more, that burden on his back, it's not getting lighter. It's getting heavier. Now, that's a great picture of legalistic slavery. If you want to rely on law-keeping and morality to be saved, it not only will not save you, but as you keep trying and failing, you only become increasingly aware of your sins And if you're banking your hopes on your ability not to sin, then you will be increasingly driven into fear and despair and hopelessness. The hopeful confidence of the one who is trusting in Christ doesn't belong to the legalist. Because for the legalist, how do you ever know it's enough? How do you know? Sure, you've done that thing, but maybe you need to do one more thing. And maybe you need to do one more thing. And maybe you need to to commit another act of obedience. And the more you try to climb the mountain, the taller the mountain gets and the heavier the burden is on your back. So what's the answer? Verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. 
but only faith, working through love. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's not inherently wrong to be circumcised. It's not inherently wrong to to, to be uncircumcised. Both of these conditions are fine. It's what they can represent that can be the problem. They can be dangerous. You can put your trust in circumcision, or you can put your trust in uncircumcision. That's just another form of bondage. Both can be a prideful, legalistic enterprise. Paul says that at the end of the day, it's not about what you do, and it's not about what you don't do. It's about faith working through love. Notice there that love, right living, is produced by faith. The Judaizers said, live right, and then you'll be made right with God. Paul says, by faith, get right with God, and then you'll live right. You see the difference? The Judaizers said, you're saved by works. Paul says, you work because you're already saved. There's a big difference there, and we'll talk more about that and unpack that more in the weeks ahead. So Christian is standing at that mountain of legalism now. The burden on his back is getting heavier and heavier, and eventually evangelist comes again to his rescue and helps Christian get back on the proper path. And a little later on in the book, Bunyan writes that, I saw in my dream that the highway along which Christian was to proceed was fenced in on both sides with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Therefore, burdened Christian ran up this way, though not without great difficulty because of the load on his back, So he ran in this direction until he came to a place where the way ascended up a small hill, and at the top stood a cross, while below it was a sepulcher, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came to the cross, came up to the cross, his burden fell from off his back, then it continued to tumble down the hill until it fell into the mouth of the tomb and was seen no more. And at this, Christian felt glad and overjoyed. And in his excitement, he exclaimed, He has given me rest by means of his sorrow, and life by means of his death. Then he stood still for a while to look with wonder and amazement, for it was so surprising to him that the sight of the cross should accomplish the release of his burden. The book goes on to say that Christian then gave three leaps for joy, and he went on singing, and he sang this. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anyone else ease the grief that I was in, until I came here. What place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must hear the cords that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that was put to shame for me. Friends, if you came here this morning as an unbeliever, you need the message of the gospel. You need to know that the sins that burden you will not be relieved through you climbing a mountain of good works. That's a life of feudal slavery. The gospel says to you this morning that Jesus Christ came and took the burden of the sin of sinners on his back. And on the cross, Jesus paid the price 
for all of those sins. He suffered the full punishment for them so that all who would have faith in Him would find that all of their sins have been paid for. Never to owe God a debt again. Fully accepted and received as a son, as a daughter into God's household. Never to be cast out. If you're here this morning as a believer and yet you, you struggle with legalism in any way, guess what you need? The answer is the same. You need the message of the gospel too. You need to be reminded of what saved you. And you need to be reminded of what is keeping you saved. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was talking about the payment for your sins. Including that sin of wavering sometimes, like you do. Including that sin of sometimes giving in to those temptations of legalism. He was talking about the payment for your sins. So stop trying to pay for them yourself. It's already done. Stop making it about you. It's not about you. It's never been about you. It's about Him and what He's done. Jesus Christ turned to a people who were tired and weary and beaten down and battered and bruised by a feudal system of legalism, he turned to them and said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ said that whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. So, brothers and sisters... It is for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are free, so be free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for believers in this room, I pray that you would help us to embrace the freedom that is in Christ and all that that freedom entails. Father, forgive us for that, that tendency to, to, to turn back to our performance and to put the spotlight on those things. Father, thank you so much that, that ultimately it is not about what we do or what we don't do, but it is about trusting in the one who's done it all. And Father, I pray for, for unbelievers in this room that they would, that they would cast aside any kind of hope that they have in being good. They're not good. And they know it. Father, help them to turn their eyes away from themselves and to turn their eyes to the cross and to Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished. Thank You, Father, that Your Son finished the work so we don't have to. In Jesus' name, amen.